0: This is episode 17 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, I talk about the life of Edwin Brush, known professionally as Brush the Great. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. And you are listening to episode 17 about the life of Edwin Brush, Brush the Great, another forgotten magician from the 20th century. But before we begin, I'd like to send out a big happy birthday to Mark Wilson, who turns a young 90 years old this weekend. Uh, Also in the sad news department, um, Anthony Owen who was a producer of Magic Specials in England, passed away. I just heard about this today on Facebook. I don't have any details other, other than he he's passed away, and my condolences to his family and to his many friends. Last month, I shared a personal story with you that uh, I accidentally edited out of the podcast. I was trying to explain the reason there were not so many podcasts in the month of March. And it had to do with the fact that I personally had an accident and I was laid up and uh, basically unable to walk for pretty much the entire month. And uh, and also, um, I was in extreme pain most of the entire month of March. Uh, so that sort of throws a wrench into any sort of desire to do podcasts. Um, plus a lot of the research material that I needed for uh, this podcast and some of the other ones um, was in storage, so I couldn't get it. So, uh, so now I'm back on my feet and I'm trying to get caught up uh, for some of the time I've lost. And one of the ways that I'm going to do that is uh, with some mini-podcasts. These will be shorter episodes, around 10 to 15 minutes long, instead of the normal 30 to 45 minutes. And it won't be the regular format, just going to be, you know, kind of some filler um, episodes, basically on magicians that I just can't find a whole lot of information about. But I have enough that I think you'll find them interesting. So uh, that's something to look forward to. Down the road. Hopefully, that will also make my podcasts more consistent. So instead of having something once every two or three weeks, you'll have something every week with any luck. Uh, The next episode, by the way, episode 18, uh, is an episode on Doug Henning's TV specials. It's basically the second part of the previous Doug Henning uh, episode that I did. I started talking about the Henning TV specials in that one, and I only I think I only got to his special number four. And I was like, I I was stopping there because the episode was running so long. But I wanted to finish this out and do the remainder of his TV specials as well. And then just give a little bit more information on Doug Henning. So that'll be on podcast number 18. Uh, Also, really quick, uh, for you Magic History buffs out there, there is a really cool item on eBay right now. And I hope I get this podcast done before the auction ends. It's uh, The item is a Bible that was given out by Wyman the Wizard. Now, Wyman lived in the eight, uh, the 19th century. And one of the things he was famous for were his gift shows. And he was always giving out really good quality gifts. And this Bible is one of the gifts that he gave out during the gift show. And it just so happens to be one of them is on eBay right now. And I encourage you to go check it out and potentially bid on it. And best of luck to all the bidders and especially to the winner. So check that out. And now to today's feature. In today's age, it isn't uncommon to find people who will tell you they got inspired to become a magician by watching Doug Henning or David Copperfield. Others might say Chris Angel, Dynamo, or David Blaine. Uh, any, really, any of the modern magicians are sure to inspire a budding young magician. And it's also true you'll find countless folks who say Houdini inspired them, despite the fact that they never saw Houdini perform live. That is the power of his legend. But imagine someone telling you that the person who inspired them was Alexander Herman. And that's going back in time for sure, and and such a person is the subject of our podcast today. His name was Edwin Brush. He was born Edward M. Brush on March 21st, 1873, in Garden Prairie, Illinois. At the young age of 12, a friend of his showed him some pocket tricks, some pocket magic, and the magic seed was planted. Brush began to learn various small tricks on his own at that point, but it wasn't until 1889, when Alexander Herman brought his show to Rockford, Illinois, that Brush really got bitten by the magic bug. In fact, Brush was in the audience when Herman was performing. He was 16 years old at the time. Brush, not Herman, and at that point when he finished watching the show, he decided that was it. He was going to become a professional magician, and Herman would always remain his all-time favorite magician. Brush actually went on to college for business, and in 1895 went to work for a clothing company out of Chicago as a sales manager. And according to David Price's book, A Pictorial History of Conjurers in the Theater, Brush used pocket magic in his job as a salesman for the Strauss company. He would use it, like many salespeople have done, to break the ice with potential new clients. And apparently this technique was very successful as Brush went on to have the most lucrative year out of anybody working for the Strauss company. He also took the occasional private show outside of his regular job, and these many gigs eventually led him to the conclusion that he was more than capable of going into magic full-time. In 1900, he left the clothing business behind and ventured out doing only magic. For two years, he worked playing many different venues and polishing his stand-up act, and in 1902, he signed his first contract to work in the Lyceum circuit, which was a circuit that hired orators, lecturers, musicians, and performers to entertain on the on a specific uh, circuit set that uh, went throughout the country, Brush quickly joined folks like Morrow, Laurent, and Germain the Wizard. In 1904, Brush set a record by becoming the first magician to perform in the newly created Chautauqua tent shows. Between his Chautauqua shows and his Lyceum shows, he kept very busy. In David Price's book, it mentions uh, a conflict that Brush would run into during Sunday performances. Apparently, some communities back then, some communities took issue with the magic show playing on the same day as church services. So to combat this problem, Brush created a number of lectures that had some sort of moral lesson. These often included tricks as well, but were often geared towards Christian principles. And he had lectures on the ills of gambling, um, on health and eating right, on working with the community, and much, much more. This seemed like a good way to fix a potential issue and provide a good program for people. But according to a short article that I found in The Linking Ring, one of these very lectures got him fired from the Chautauqua Circuit. Brush continued to do Lyceum shows until 1927, when it is said he retired from the field. Let's take a look at some of the material that Brush presented during his time with the Two Circuits. He was not performing a big illusion show, but rather a platform-style magic show, though he did occasionally find larger props into his show and... Uh, he often finished with an illusion. Some of the standard routines were linking rings, miser's dream, vanishing and reappearing canaries. He also did a, a bare-handed color-changing silk that turned into a flag, a very clever billiard ball routine that Howard Thurston pointed out had a really great method. He did a fishbowl appearance and then his own method for the aerial fishing routine. He did a rising card from goblet routine he had a, a another clever um, item where he borrowed a gentleman's hat and then produced baby linens from the hat, and then a cabbage, and then a live guinea pig. And just a side note, I remember seeing in one of the cabinets in Ken Klosterman's collection a um, a cabbage, and I, I, I can't help but wonder <laughs> if that cabbage was uh, was Brush's cabbage. Could be, maybe. Uh, although i thought it was a head of lettuce but okay there you go uh, more effects more effects included a glass through hat pedestal a uh, a watch that was uh, shot into a target after it had been smashed to pieces a spirit table lifting routine that harry keller was fooled by a gazing ball which was part of his uh, q and a act Brush also had a duck pan that he used to actually produce a rooster, which he claimed was more amazing than a duck. And he had a flying lamp and table routine and an arm amputation, which was also his creation, or it may have been an improvement on an existing effect. Now, I mentioned that Brush did mostly platform-style magic, but apparently he did close most of his shows with some sort of illusion. And among the illusions he had... Uh, was a levitation that I'm, I'm really curious about because it fooled Thurston. He had something he called the Mahatma chair illusion where a girl disappears and an assistant turns into the magician, so it was like two illusions in one, Uh, He was also the inventor of the Rip Van Winkle Illusion, which was a costume change transformation involving audience volunteers. I found a routine called the Rip Van Winkle Illusion in the book The Great Illusions of Magic by Byron Wells. Um, And it also involves costumes, but I don't think it's the same as Brush's illusion. I don't think. Maybe, you know, inspired by it, but I don't think it's the same. Another illusion that Brush featured was the Hindu basket. And there's an illustration on one of uh, Brush's posters that has the Hindu basket. In fact, below it has a caption, the Hindu basket. Uh, this appears to be the the round version of the basket. Another popular version of the day was a rectangular wicker type basket that involved the tipping over process. But Brush was doing the Hindu basket, the, the one that's more popular here in the 20th century and 21st century, like the one the Pendragons did. You might be surprised that Brush is also included in the Tarbell Course in Magic. Uh, his routine involved a loadable, and I, I thought this was a really, really cool routine. With the loadable, he produced six glasses of water. And then after he produced the six glasses of water, he would go about pouring all six glasses back into the bowl, which wouldn't go; it would spill over. And it, it gives the uh, kind of gives the loadable a logical ending, which it rarely has. It's usually just the same thing: water keeps coming, keeps coming. But this way, you're pouring it back, and from water the water you produce. There's even more in there, so it's it's really a, a cool twist to it. There's an interesting write-up of Brush in a 1912 edition of the Sphinx magazine, and the article compliments Brush on his handling of ducks and rabbits, but chides him on the fact that he's still wearing knickerbockers when most other magicians have discarded them for more updated looks. And I remember reading the same comment in the, uh, the recent book about Frederick Eugene Powell, Uh, Someone else commented to Powell that he was wearing knickerbockers in a time when no one was wearing those anymore. So I imagine that both Brush and uh, Powell quickly changed their pants. The Sphinx covered Brush again in 1924 and said, What I liked best about Brush was not the new effects he performed, but on the other hand, the manner in which he performed some of the old favorites, such as aerial fishing, the miser stream, linking rings, and others. Mr. Brush has a fine personality, a remarkably good speaking voice, and has a funny line of patter. And in fact, uh, a letter that I had... Uh, Read somewhere, said that uh, Brush, his favorite routine was the linking rings, and he felt his was the best version of the linking rings, bar none. In 1933, Brush was talked out of retirement and back into performing for a tour of China the tour would include sharing the bill with S.S. Henry, and their first stop on the way to China was performing in Honolulu, which by all accounts was a big success. However, once they got to China, things weren't so positive, and apparently the tour was not very successful and was cut short due to the illness of the, show's, uh, the show producer's wife. At the age of 83, many said Brush looked like he was 50. He has a. He was starting a new career at this point in spiritual education for the young. He put together a sort of magic revival meeting show that lasted six nights. Each night featured a new lesson and a lecture, and the lesson would be illustrated by magic. At some point in his retirement, which I don't, think, I don't gather he really retired. He just sort of semi-retirement. He put together his ten suitcase show system, and basically. He had 10 suitcases, and each suitcase was one complete show, all the props he needed for that one complete show. And if he was booked for a venue, he could grab one of these suitcases and go perform a full show. And then if he was called back to do a repeat booking at this same venue, he would just grab a different suitcase, and it would allow him to uh, not duplicate any tricks. It's a clever system. In 1945, Brush began performing in US, uh, USO shows. He was uh, in the USO show for the Sioux City Army Air Base, also in Camp Ploush. Uh, and here's a quote about his show at the USO uh, events. Though he is an old timer, his appearance and stage presence is comparable with any of the younger magicians. His act was very much enjoyed. He also, Brush, continued to create and build props. Uh, he created something called the New Hat Levitation, and basically uh, he could borrow any hat from someone in the audience, and after a few passes, the hat would remain suspended in the air, despite the fact that you're passing your hands over and, over and under it. And it could be performed within a few feet of the audience, and it's sold for the princely sum of of 50 cents. It was sold by the H.R. Hulse Magic uh, Company out of Atlanta, Georgia. In 1957, Brush ran an ad in the linking ring advertising the sale of his entire show, complete with tables, props, draperies, and everything for the sum of $500. One thing that really stood out about Brush was his mustache. He had a very... Unusual mustache. In fact, um, there's a short piece in volume 23, number seven edition of The Sphinx, where Dr. Am Wilson is discussing Brush's mustache. He says, Edwin Brush has a mustache that must be his trademark because once seen, it can never be forgotten. The first time I met Edward Brush, I could not see Brush. I could not hear Brush. I could not think Brush. I simply saw, heard, and thought, mustache. The mustache of the Kaiser is famous. The mustache of brush makes that of the German emperor look like three lost feathers in an overdue duster. I'd say that says a lot about Brush's mustache. Actually, the first time I saw pictures of Brush, I actually mistook him for Dr. Walford Bodie. And speaking of Bodie, I believe I'm going to add him to a future podcast, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Bodie had a really wild mustache as well. It was different than Brush's. Um, Brush sported a smaller, thinner mustache, which uh, pointed upwards. So I guess he must have waxed his mustache to have it point upwards. It gave him a very unique appearance. Uh, During his lifetime, Brush went by several different monikers. Brush the Mystic, Brush the Great, Brush the King of Wizards, and Brush the Magical Artist. Uh, Edwin Brush died just shy of his 94th birthday on March 30th, 1967, Another source said March 18th, so if that's correct, um, yeah, it must have been it must have been March 18th because he was born um, on the 21st. So if he was just shy of it, there you go. So I don't know where I got that 30th date, but trust me, I went through a lot of different sources to find it. Uh, he died just just shy of it. He had IBM number 170, and after his death, his 10-suitcase uh, system was actually willed to Egyptian Hall, the one owned by David Price. A little bit more magic trivia, Joe Berg, the magic dealer, was actually an assistant for a time for Edwin Brush. Brush, because he lived so long, had opinions of just about every magician you can imagine. And in Mike Cavney's column in the March 2006 issue of Magic Magazine, um, he reprinted a, a letter by Brush where he talked about various magicians. Now, Brush really liked Eugene Laurent and Ed Reno's show. Uh, he thought Jermaine the Wizard had some wonderfully creative effects, but was not as strong a magician because he had a weak voice. That's something I never heard before. I found that fascinating. Uh, he never saw Morrow perform, but only heard great things about him, so he had a lot of respect for Morrow. He thought Lafayette was the best illusionist he ever saw. That says a lot, too. And uh, he felt that Herman was the greatest magician of all time. In fact, um, he didn't think that Keller, Thurston, Blackstone, or Dante were even in the same class as Herman. That's how much of a, on a pedestal he put Herman the Great. And I gather he didn't think much about Houdini's act, but it doesn't say, the letter doesn't say when he saw Houdini, if he saw Houdini in a vaudeville show or later in the three-in-one show. And um, he also mentions being considered as one of Thurston's successors, but because he never cultivated a relationship with Thurston, uh, it never came about. Basically, the two of them lived on different coasts. Thurston was on the East Coast. And uh, Brush was on the West Coast. I'm going to wrap up this episode with a few final words on Edwin Brush from The Linking Ring. And this little piece here also appeared in Billboard magazine as well. It goes like this Edwin Brush, a magic man, he sailed the briny main. He was Mr. Brush in England, Senor Brush in Spain. The Frenchmen called him Monsieur Brush. But the Germans were his bane. They always called him Hairbrush, which filled his soul with pain. And there you go, my friends. That's a little bit about Edwin Brush. Um, if you go to my po- uh, not my podcast, if you go to my blog, which is themagicdetective.com, you can see some of uh, Brush's posters full-color posters. He had three different full-color posters uh, printed by the Goes Lithograph Company, and they're really beautiful. They stand up to any of the Kellers or Thurston's or anyone of the time. They're wonderful posters. I think my favorite one is one where he's standing in front of a table, and it seems like all of his props are coming out of this uh, little vase on the table. It's a beautiful uh, rendition, and apparently Brush also... Uh, create well didn't actually do the drawing but had the uh, the idea for all the posters and then he brought them to an artist and the artist uh, did the creation for him but um, they're really great posters for Edwin Brush like I said another forgotten magician of the 20th century We had two winners for the past Magic Detective Podcast contests that I can finally divulge because I've sent out their prizes. Um, Ash Adams and Eric Bartlett were our two winners. The first contest question was, who was the senator who sponsored the anti-fortune-telling bill that Houdini was involved in? And the answer to that was Saul Bloom. If you'd like to learn more about Houdini's time before Congress, check out podcast number seven. The second contest question was, along with Survey Leroy, who were the other members of the Triple Alliance? And the answer was not Talma and Bosco. They were the Monarchs of Magic. The Triple Alliance predated them, and the other two members were Imro Fox and Frederick Eugene Powell. And if you'd like to learn more about Survey Leroy, check out podcast number four. And now, for the new podcast contest question... You ready? Name an illusionist, a contemporary of Houdini, who left a successful stage career to become a gold miner. And though that sounds like a typical magician's tall tale, he actually ended up testifying before Congress about the gold mining industry. Who was this illusionist? This time, I'll accept uh, entries right up until the time of the next podcast, in which time I will draw a name among those who got it right, and whose ever name I pick, you're going to be the winner of a piece of magic history, a bit of memorabilia, as it were. Just send your answers to info at carnegiemagic.com, and please put contest number three in the subject heading. And I'm finally working on podcast, uh, well, the podcast about Anna Eva Fay. I'm very excited about this one because it will be the first podcast about a female. And incidentally, if you happen to have suggestions on possible female magicians that I could cover in future episodes, please let me know. You can send those suggestions to info at carnegiemagic.com. Uh, oh, and, um, this has nothing to do with my podcast, but remember that there is a Potter and Potter auction coming up on April 27th, which includes the many treasures of Ray Goulet. And if you haven't had a chance to look at the catalog yet, um, I have, um, boy, it looks like a lot of Ray's collection was already distributed, um, as there's a lot of things missing that I was interested in. <laughs> um, but that being said, there are still many great, uh, items in the sale, so uh, or in the auction, so check that out. That's on April twenty seventh, online, or I guess you can go and bid there, at Potter and Potter in Chicago, if you want. Um, How? By the way, how'd you make out of the previous Potter and Potter auction? I walked away with a piece of sheet music by uh, Robert Heller, so I was pretty happy about that. And uh, I'm getting texts and the it's. In the middle of the night, I'm getting texts. What's that all about? All right. Oh, uh, real quick, I want to give a shout out to my friend, Billy Diamond, who's a big Magic History fan, and uh, he's been kind enough to share some uh, comments with me about the podcast. And he, by the way, Billy is also an incredible marketer and has a website called brandingentertainers.com, which I encourage you to check out. It's very, very cool. Also, another shout out to my pal, Gary Brown, who gives me feedback on every podcast and who actually was the one who provided this month's question. So that's going to do it for this episode. Please, if you like the podcast, please subscribe, as that will allow you to leave comments and also like the podcast, which means hitting the button that has a little star on it. Or I don't know if it has a star or a heart, but um, uh, it'll allow you to do that, depending upon the platform you're listening on. If you're listening via iTunes, please give us five stars and leave a comment, too. That would be great. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. I hope you have a great week. Take care.